0: Hello, and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scots Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back, and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear, might just get the chip, and he does. He scores!
1: Oh, oh what, what a great back! Oh. He did it! Oh, <laughs> Wiggling his way that's an excellent ball. And he, it's a goal!
0: Four for the drive back. Excellent play by Hughes. I think the square of the match, and swiftly finished by Kenny.
2: And this week, our guest is the Morton legend, Andy Ritchie. Andy, thanks for coming on.
1: You're welcome, Tom.
2: Nice to see you guys. Yeah,
0: thank you, Andy. It's an absolute honour and a pleasure to have you on. It's, um, so thank you for taking the time to join us
1: today. You're welcome. No problem. This week, we're looking at a copy of
2: Shoot from the 2nd of August, 1980. So let's have a wee look at the cover. Uh, so on the cover, we've got Laurie Cunningham. Uh, of Real Madrid there, playing against Barcelona, and the headline, Laurie Cunningham success or failure, uh, shoots nationwide, can Ipswich make the breakthrough, film star OCRDOS, and uh, there's a heading that says, should Kevin Keegan be captain of England, and it's all from Shoot, the number one soccer magazine, and uh, we look at the price, 22 pence at this point, August 1980, uh, Canada 60 cents, Australia 50 cents, uh, Andy,
1: would you have bought Shoot or uh, a similar magazine when you were when you were young? Yeah, we were brought up with Shoot, Tom. This was the uh, the magazine. Yeah, twenty two pence. What a bargain it was at that time as well. You know, it was new to the to the scene as far as football was concerned then, and it covered everything. It was the first magazine I ever read. You know that that took you out with the bounds of the West of Scotland more or less, Tom. You know, and uh, it changed the whole concept of football without any shadow of doubt. And I was fortunate. Would you believe, Tom? I won the Shoot Football of the Year here in Scotland. Yeah, I think um, we're we'll, think we're going to get to that at some point. The oh, of I'll get quicker than you, Tom. Don't worry about that. You know, <laughs> uh, Kenny won it down in, in Liverpool, and 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 I won it up here in, in Scotland that year. You know, and uh, that was, that that was a big big thing. You know, the and the Shoot magazine were just beginning to break into Scotland as well at that time. You know, they. Had, discovered a scene like that and, and, and quite liked it. So, yeah, it was a big, big thing. And, yeah, every week you read it, without a shadow of a
0: doubt. Every week. I think, I think uh, Andy, the, the thing that Tom and I point out a lot, especially with the sort of early years of Shoot magazine, is the amount of Scottish content that's in it was, was really, you know, quite impressive. Whether it be the game up in Scotland or Scottish players down south, it yes. really was noticeable by the amount of content in it. So, I mean... That in itself, just when you compare it to nowadays and the coverage that we get up here, it's it's night and day, night and day.
1: Without a shadow of a doubt, you know, and you you're right to touch on that as well because you know ninety five percent the Scottish international team played down south at that time, you know. Mm. So there was ple- plenty of Scottish content even out with the rain football up here, but it was just it was more important to us up here to to be seen down there as well, you know. Everybody read it, everybody knew it, but I'm just looking at Laurie Cunningham on the front here, and I remember when Laurie Cunningham signed for Real Madrid, uh, Atletico Madrid, would you believe me, an inquiry, and I went out with Hal Stewart to, to speak to their, their chairman at that time, he just joined, the, what was his name, the famous Jesus, Jesus Gill was yeah. the chairman's name at it, Atletico Madrid at that time, and uh, they, Real had signed the best player so-called in, in England, and Athletic, Atletico Madrid at that time had brought me over to, to discuss with Hal about signing, you know, and Hal wanted a million pounds plus so many <laughs> roll-ons. We spent about three hours at Atletico Madrid at the game that day, as well. I remember we watched the game here in Spain, Hal and myself, and I think by the time we got to the end, of you all know, that Jesus Gil who went on to become quite a personality in the game as well, was that sick fed up listening to Hal Stewart He couldn't get rid of us quick enough, you know? Uh, but they, they they signed somebody else for a lot less money, probably a better player at that time. But uh, it would be nice, you know. Laurie Cunningham, what a fantastic player he was! And yeah. uh, I think he was, I think he was really one of the first, you know, out with all the boys in the fifties who had made it big time, the uh, continental clubs of that, you know. And it was it was a booster. But I remember thinking, oh, aye, and uh, no bad place, Madrid. Eh? Would you have, would you have fancied that then, Andy playing
2: playing in Spain? Uh,
1: I probably cut my right leg off tom to be honest with you, you know it was just another just another one of the the disappointments that i seen hubbard around about that time you know that you know if they had to come in with some sort of valuation how, maybe four or five hundred thousand pound they would have, they would maybe have got that deal done maybe nobody knows you know but yeah. i would have been near at a heartbeat you know be 45 quid a week part-time in scotland to to play with atletico madrid but is it to see tom doing a no been a no-brainer yeah. Do you think Hal was maybe pricing you out
0: of a move at the time then, or was he just trying to get as much as he could?
1: He just wanted to get as much as he could at that time, and he had this idea that you know he would get millions, you know, maybe not one, but maybe no one, maybe two, maybe up around about that, you know. He had this idea and he was going to stick by it. That was the type of man that he was, you know. And I think, as I say, we use skill, he was non negotiable. And I think what they were talking about was in the region of three to £400,000. So it was out the ballpark right away. But I, it, that was a figment of Hal's imagination, guys. That's what it was, you know. And at that time, if I can take you back a wee bit like that, you know, football players were treated more or less like slaves at that time. You know, you didn't go anywhere that the club didn't want you to go. Once you'd signed for that football club, that was you signed for life. Up until the time that they decided that you know they didn't want you anymore, or somebody gave them some ridiculous offer, and you know, that was always in Hal's mind to get a million pounds for me. It was never gonna happen. Never, you know, but you couldn't convince him of that at that time. And you really didn't matter how how you felt, excuse me, about it yourself, made absolutely no difference. There was an article article in your shoot there about uh, me wanting to to move on at that time and and, and go somewhere else. And I say they would never kick another ball for Morton and all this kind of stuff, you know. That was the only string you had to your bow. You would try and kick your heels up. To be honest, when you make a bloody pest of yourself for a wee while and start making noises that, you know, only pissed off your own supporters at that time as well. But that was really the only, only string you had in your bow to try and get a move like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's the way it worked up until the time they'd had enough of you you were stuck there yeah. you Tell us a bit more about Hal I think he was, he was a bit of a visionary in,
2: in Scottish football eh? he was a guy with a, an eye for the main chance I think
1: uh, I think he was like that in life right. I didn't really know nothing at all about Hal Stewart other than the business that I had I'm doing it at Morton but he seemed to have you know quite a checkered career prior to, to getting involved in football clubs you know I remember a story about tobacco company, he ran a tobacco company, you know, for some Americans are here making cigarettes and what he was doing then was his contacts in the game, he was getting all the players at that moment in time to go in all the places he was doing, you know, play heady tennis and football halls and that, you know, and advertise the American tobacco company at that time. Uh, so that was his interest, his, that was his format into getting involved in football you know, paying guys money to go and do things like that, football players, and then he discovered the football club. But, yeah, he could have been, you know, I, I once described him as, you know, being Arthur Daly before Arthur Daly. You know, his soft hat, he was always immaculately dressed, you know, you know, you get to see him about some mere money and you'd come out having left money on his table, you know, he was that <laughs> convincing that things were going to work out for everybody. It, it had this beautiful personality. You knew you were being conned. You knew (laughs) that. But there was absolutely bugger all you could do about it, you know. And you couldn't dislike him. You would come out banging doors and you wouldn't be halfway along the corridor you burst out laughing yourself (laughs) with some of the shit that he was coming away with, you know. He just was that type of person. A lovable granddaddy would have been. right, we turn over
2: the the page then. Before we do it, I just want to uh, have a look at because the
0: kits are They're very, very simplistic. There's no logos of that on them. The the Real Madrid is just white. The Barcelona is, you know, the the classic Barcelona um, stripes. But I just want to look at, if we zoom in, the shorts seem to have a pocket on the front of them. Because that's a definite fold with a button. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? And it's like, I've never seen a pair of professional football shorts that has a pocket on them. For what Mm -hmm. purpose? What purpose would you... I mean, you're not going to keep your two pences in there or anything like that, are you?
1: Well, that would have been ideal for me at Morton because I was a smoker, so I could (laughs) have a fag and a lighter in there for half-time rather than than having to do what I did with my fag at half-time anyway, you know? I used to have to plank it in the bathroom at Capelo because I liked to go for a half-time smoke. And uh, the first time I went down to play, it was a midweek game at Capelo, and I'll never forget it. I went in and I put my cigarette in my wee... My wee uh, box of matches behind the cistern in the toilet. That shows you how fly I was at that time in the whole thing. And uh, I would get in there at half time. But little did I know at that time that Wally Gray, the kit man, used to get in 10 minutes before half time and turn the big bath on or the sheep dip, as it was known. And all the condensation for the hot water running into the bath sogged <laughs> all my fag and my matches, and I couldn't get my fag at half time. So I had to come up with an ingenious idea, wrap it in tin foil and putting it behind the cistern so that it didn't didn't go soggy, the fag in the matches. So these pants would have been ideal for me. You know, one Benson and Hedges used the wee box of swan vest would have just fitted in lovely there. Oh,
0: brilliant. They had their time there, Absolutely
1: brilliant. But I'd never seen anything like that before on
0: on a pair of football shorts, so
1: I just thought I'd point that out, Tom. It's one of my pet hates in football as well. I've been to the wee guy who just made up the Morton strip there. The new strip that they're using this year, and we're talking online about it, and uh, I'd say to him, I hate buttons on a football strip. It's the most useless, stupid thing you're ever liable to have on the collars and all that. Football strips weren't made for buttons, they were way back in the 30s, I know they had them then, but then when they moved them on, there were so many nicer collars without having buttons on it. And what a nightmare, you know, the catman man's got to sit on a Friday night with needle and thread and saw the buttons back on. Surely jersey pulling would make sure that you never had a button on a jersey in yeah. your life again. But it seems to have been popular. But I've never, ever seen it like that on, on shorts. Yeah. Never seen a button on shorts. Yeah. Over the page then, so pages two and three, we've got a shoot
2: nationwide, East Anglia, Ipswich, ready to make the breakthrough. And uh, there's a picture there of... Uh, Bobby Robson. So
1: Bobby Robson, Andy, what 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 did you do you have some interaction with Bobby Robson? Oh yeah. I did a few times. I worked pretty well down in England, so I used to see him about at that time and see him at games and what have you. Uh, but I remember having a bit of interaction with him that worked out really well for me, Tom. I was a chief scout at Celtic at the time with Tommy Burns. And Uh, Celtic and Barcelona went out to Europe early that year and they'd organised a friendly at Celtic Park and Bobby Robson brought his team over to play the game and uh, I was at the game that night obviously and watched it and Tommy Burns had invited me back into the manager's office for a cup of tea and what have you so I wouldn't need to sit in all the traffic heading home again so I was first in naturally I was first in they all went back to their dressing rooms but Bobby Robson was in very quickly after that and it was only myself Rosemary Thomas is a good lady and another lady for Celtic staff sorting out teas and coffees. So I grabbed myself a cup of coffee and the door opened and Bobby Robson came in with his entourage. I think Josie Mourinho was there, funny enough, if my memory serves me correct. Barcelona had beat Celtic that night in the game. And uh, because I was the only one in the room, (laughs) he acknowledged and I acknowledged him and he said, do you enjoy the game? And said, what is it you do? I'm the chief scout here. So we started to talk that way. You know, and how's things going? You, know, you need any players? I said, I could use that wee baldy boy you've got in the middle of the park, the wee boy De La Pena. He was about 18 at that time. I said, I could do with him in the middle of the park out there. And the big boy Prozanetsky could do as a wee turn here in the midfield as well if you want to get rid of him. You know, so we're laughing. What is it you're looking for? I said, I'm looking for a striker. Everybody's looking for strikers. I says, I've been all over the place looking for one that can, can go up, play with Henrik Larson, you know. And uh, he said to me, Oh, what kind of I? I said to him, somebody loves on the edge of things, can get in and about the box, good control, finishes, No, a lot of money because we don't have a lot of money. He says, Oh, he says, Oh, not that many of them gonna you know, and blather, that Anyway, Tommy Burns and Billy Stark come back into the office again, so automatically they get together and they're talking about the game and what have you. And after about quarter and an hour, they're leaving to go back to the hotel, Barcelona. And Bobby Robson came across. Them. I thought he was holding his hand out to shake my hand. So I put my hand back out. He say, "Curio" or whatever it was before. He says, there you go, that might help. And he put something into my hand, a bit of paper on my hand. I says, oh, thanks very much. I'm looking at it. First of all, I thought it was money. I panicked a wee bit, you know, in case he was giving me a bung. And uh, I just held it in my hand and they said their cheerios and off they went. When I opened it up, there was a name on the bit of paper and the name was George Cadetti. Bobby had had him at Sporting Lisbon and he knew all about him and it must have been a wee 30 second conversation that he had sprung to mind. And he'd actually written £450,000 on the, the piece of paper as well, which lit up my eyes. Now, that I, I, I sort of, I knew, I knew of the name again but I couldn't relate to it at that time and I showed it to Thomas. And he said to me, oh, that, that's the guy that played He said, that was at the game, 5 nothing they beat Scotland Um during... Alan McCoy's broke his leg that night. And he said, oh, I remember that guy. She's sporting Lisbon. I go on to that and see how that see how that works out. Go on to that right away. So I was on to it the next morning. The rest is history, as they say. Mm-hmm. Oh. But that was Bobby Robson, and he seemed a nice enough fellow. And I met him a few times down in England. I always introduced myself by thanking him for that wee bit of paper that he put into my hand, you know. met him at Southampton one day, the first time that I'd had done, i met him since then. And any time run about, you know, any time I was at games, it was there. I always made sure I thanked him again for that one. But he, what, a, what a record they had at Ipswich.
0: Okay. And then he
1: talked to the Scottish players earlier on. You know, he had a, he had a, a few of them down there as well. Like George Burley, he had Alan Brazil, Johnny Wark. You know, three smashing players then there, three legends then there at Ipswich. Yeah. Uh, and they all done a turn for him. But he had a very, very good scout at that time by all accounts. And that helped him get the three boys done, you know. But what a fantastic team. And then into Holland again, didn't they? Yeah, nice. Arnold And and Franz Tyson. Yeah. Uh, who was a big central defender again that played with Terry Butcher? Hey, Russell Osmond. Russell Osman. Good player, good, good player. Mick Mills, used to see Mick Mills running a bit I was scouting in England as well. He did a bit of work uh, and the big fella that died there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Paul big Marner. For Paul Marner, yeah. You yeah, know, he was he was a the, the original breed English striker at that time, mobile big, win things in the air, link up with we fellas like Alan Brazil, we fat fellas like Alan Brazil, you know. Uh, Ah, they were a they were a, a very very good football team with very very good football players. I think that was Bobby Stiley. All right, so just on that uh, just on that page, it's
2: looking at uh, East Anglia and it's looking at the other other managers of the East Anglian clubs there. Picture of John Bowens, uh, who's been Norwich Norwich City at that time. Peter Morris and John Docherty control the fate of East Anglian football. Uh, the article the, the article says, and there's we know, there about uh, Justin Flash now. Uh, Justin Fashion, who has packed enough action in his short, explosive career to earn England Youth and Under 21 honours, as well as attracting a bit of £500,000 from Newcastle. The fashion he was obviously at um, Norwich City at the time. Anything uh, you spotted on that
1: page there? Uh, just a, the fact that East Anglian football was just beginning to, to, to break through a wee bit at that time as well. They were beginning to get a bit more notice outside East Anglia the fact that Norwich weren't as big and as powerful a club, their turn was to come later on as well. But that that for me put Norwich and, and, and Ipswich on, the, on the, the map for me at that time when I was reading things like that. And then obviously the football looked after itself after that, you know. Johnny Bond, I think Johnny Bond went to Manchester City after he was at Norwich. Uh, I don't know about the other two gentlemen that were in it as well, but uh, between the two of them, they had, they had big, big careers. John Bond and Obviously, Bobby Robson, and uh, it must have been a real exciting time in in, in East Anglia to be a, to be an Norwich and an Ipswich supporter at that time, especially Ipswich European stuff was to come their way as well. But uh, they're out fantastic Well, I thought I just just saw the name there and I left it out and he'll be he'll be raging if he watches a podcast. Terry Butcher, yeah, he likes to be mentioned every so often. Terry, you know, <laughs> quiet, big, unassuming fella that he is, you know. Uh, what a player he was as well, but uh, a lot of good football players and a lot of good football action going on down there in that area of the country, and it's a smashing area of the country. I don't know if you guys have been there. Spent a lot of time down there. I was looking at players at Ipswich at that time when I was doing at Celtic, and was desperately keen to try and get the wee boy Kieran Dyer up here, but uh, he was he was destined for for bigger things. But uh, I'd got a tip off when I was scouting at that time for. Alec Mathey, who played at Morton, who had gone to to Ipswich, in a transfer, and I knew Alec well, and Alec had tipped me off very, very early about the wee boy Dyer. Uh, so I was, spent a lot of time down there, and what a great! And it's, it's not looked upon by other people in the country as being a, a a big footballing area, but the Norwich and the, the Norwich and Ipswich supporters love their football team. And I spent a bit of time down there with them, good people, you know. Two good clubs as well two very good clubs two well run always there or thereabouts maybe not so much Ipswich at the moment eh, because of circumstances but two two smashing clubs well supported
0: I think um, and the, the John Doherty who's the manager of Cambridge he, he was a Glaswegian I don't know if you, you're aware of John uh, he plays no. for Brentford, Sheffield United Brentford again, Reading, Brentford again, so he had a, he managed at Brentford as well, so I think he pretty much had a bit of a living with Brentford um, but it seems as though he's, he's, most of his career's been down there uh,
2: uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Well, There was a lot of guys at that time, you know, through the, the late 60s and the early 70s, that's where that's where you ended up mm. you know, you went down to England if you could at the very start of the whole thing, you know I remember talking about Sweet so he Brazil was at Celtic Boys Club when I was there and uh, Alan Brazil, I think, and he stated publicly on numerous occasions, would love to have signed for Celtic. But Celtic were only taking well, two strikers at that age group on at that time. And they ended up taking myself and George McCluskey. And, and Ali didn't get taken on and he ended up going to Ipswich. And as I said earlier on, the rest is history after that. Yeah. But that, that was, you know, a lot of guys, Scottish guys made their way down there, especially early on in their career. Uh, to try and make it big down in England because that's what it was all about. If you could do that, other than the fact you went to Rangers and Celtic if we were that, that way inclined, you know, you were you were trying to get the best possible club in England that you could get. And a lot of them had good careers in there. Yeah.
2: Right, Andy, we can go over, over the page again then. So this is um, Laurie Cunningham. So Laurie Cunningham, a success or failure. And I asked a few people uh, involved in Spanish football for their opinions. So there's... Laurie's uh, Yugoslav manager, Vojin Boskov. Laurie is English, you mustn't forget that. It's difficult for an English player to arrive in Spain and be a superstar overnight, but he had a good campaign. He had good games and bad games, but that's understandable. Mm. Uh, I think the uh, Barcelona manager there is... uh, is, uh, uh, Barcelona manager, Heleno Herrera. I wouldn't want him in my team. He may be all right for Real Madrid, but I would never be interested in buying him.
1: That sounds like manager sobbing me up. <laughs> <laughs> like good football players, but I just don't want them a bad team. Yeah. Was Havino Herrera was the manager for Inter Milan when Celtic beat them in the, the European Cup final. Uh, and you know what kind of team they were. Inter Milan, you know, one nothing. Catanacho shut the shop up and see what we can do. So I, I could imagine Laurie Cunningham would have been one of these, you know, topie's board for signing, you know. He didn't he didn't particularly like to be a forward-thinking manager, Herrera. You know, big jock sorted time out all right, you know.
2: Yeah. So it uh, mentions there that uh, of Cunningham's won a Spanish League Cup double plus a place in the European Cup semi-finals, made Lori Cunningham's first campaign in the week's trip of Real Madrid the most successful season of the 24-year-old English winner's career. Uh, it says he only scored 13 goals in 45 League Cup and European matches. Uh, by Loris' lot admission, not a spectacular haul. It sounds not too bad and it sounds like you had a pretty
1: good season there. Um Aye, aye. I think he did initially went out earlier, but would I be correct in saying he may very well have had a car incident or a car crash at one time just after that and he was killed in a car crash. I, I think he had one before right. before the fatal crash that that he was involved in. I think he had run into somebody and I think a young lady was seriously injured and that, that was previous tease his fatal car crash like that. And I think he, he was injured himself and been out for a wee while after that. But uh, he was an exciting football player. See, when he picked the ball up, you know, the, the buzz of the crowd and, you know, the way he wanted to attack people and take people on at that time. But well, West Brom had two or three of them in the team very similar. Okay. So, uh, you know, that's the way he played. He was an exciting Tanner Ball player, as we used to say then, you know. Very athletic, great pace. Wasn't the greatest finisher, but he could score a goal. But he could create goals, you know. As soon as he picked the ball up, you know, these big pal that played at West Brom at that time, he was well known for for singing the virtues of the virtues of the the service that he got. Big uh, what was his name? Yeah, Cyril. Cyril. Big Cyril Regis, you know. He'd talk about the service he received for Laurie Cunningham, you know. Uh, really exciting player, but uh, the first season. As it said in the article there, if I remember correctly, was probably his best season. I think I remember seeing him. It was against Celtic in the
0: in in Europe, wasn't it? There was a second leg, and he he took a corner from the right hand side, but he took it with his right foot, sort of from the outside of his right foot, and it was mm-hmm. just like you you didn't see things like that happen in mm-hmm. those days. You know, people do things like that. It would either be. An outswinger or an in swinger with your left foot, but he took it with his right foot and called it in. I think they scored from it, or I don't even know if he scored directly from it. I think, I think maybe somebody put it in, but it was just
1: yeah, a little bit of magic like that. He was one of the guys that you know, well, one of the guys that put black footballers on the map down south. Without a shadow of a doubt. the West Brom boys were a big, big influence in that, and you know because of that, because of the way he played the game, you know. We would. What would you call them up here? A Gallus character. He was a right Gallus character. He always reminded me of the lead singer of Hot Chocolate, you know, the way he swaggered onto the park. Was the way lead singer of the Hot Chocolate would swagger onto the stage, uh, and and they did. They made people sit up and take notice down there, you know, uh, about the black guys that were coming through into the game at that time. They were they were the definitely the the missionaries, a uh, black football players down in England. Cunningham Regis. Uh, and Brendan Batson was, I think, we see the yeah. fullback as well, you know. Yeah. I'd seen many times before. I was a West Ham man when I went to London when we used to go down there with the family. Big uh, Clyde Best was the first one that came into, first black player that came into English football down there. And didn't they have the greatest time after the West Ham supporters? I remember that, you know. He was popular as a football player, but uh, I don't think they were too happy at that time, West Ham. You know, having big Clyde in the Clive in the team all the time, you know. But he was the first one. But these guys really, really put the marker down for 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 the black players to follow after that. And uh, just down the side of that uh, that
2: piece there, we've got World Cup champions brochure. So this is a twenty-four page brochure of uh, Argentina's World uh, World Cup win. Argentina, 1978-82 FIFA World Champions. It says. Uh, only £1.35, including postage and packaging. Action pictures of your favourite stars, Ozzy Ardellus and the new wonder boy, Diego Maradona, plus cool. news reviews from Cesar Minotti.
0: See, I, I take a bit of an exception to this, because it says 24 pages. twenty-four page, Only £1.35. And this magazine is, I think, 52 pages, and it's 22 mm-hmm. pens. 20. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and that is just about one team, the Argentinian team, and it's like... I, I don't think that's value for money. I don't see that as value for money.
1: Well, you would think about it would be value for money now. one point thirty eight. you couldn't get a first-class stamp. They're going to deliver it to you as well, you know? So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, you're probably right enough. But when I look through some of the old programmes, three pence and yeah. eight pence for games in the 1970s, it, you know, I don't know if it was a big seller. I don't know you'd be able to tell me better than that, Andy, you know? But that it, it seem like a lot of money now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, the thing is, you know, a collector now would probably pay about 20 or 30 quid off eBay for that book. So, yeah it's, yeah, it's it's all about what you want,
2: isn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah. When this magazine was out, it was, you know, when Shoot Magazine was out every week like that, you know, and to get your paper, and that's what everybody did in the mornings. didn't matter where you were going to work. If I was going to work at Celtic Park when I was a young player in there, or whether men were going to work in the Ravenscraig Steelworks at the same time they were making their way, you know, you went in for whatever you want, you know, your, your stuff. But the shoot magazine was next to all the papers. It was next to the record, the Daily Express and everything else. And everybody bought a paper going to work in the morning. I don't see a bloody newspaper now, you know. You're hard-pressed. Somebody, somebody like myself, as I mentioned to you earlier on, Technological Dinosaur, still needs a newspaper but uh, people just don't seem to buy them like that. and when I would go in and, and, and get mine, so it was a Wednesday it was always out the Shoot magazine when I would go in I'd, I'd, I'd buy the Shoot magazine take it in with me, with my newspaper to my work in the morning and bring it back out so everybody bought. Everybody was interested in football uh, or even people that were involved in football they bought the magazine all the time so uh, 22, I couldn't even tell you if they said to me what the price was Andy I'd, I probably wouldn't be able to guess but yeah. Twenty-two is not a lot of money,
2: no,
1: for the content as well. well exactly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Right, pages six and seven, across two pages. There is Ray Wilkins' column. The day we smashed Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, remember Ray Wilkins as much as a player, Andy? I do.
1: I do. I've seen quite a bit of him as well. Ray Wilkins, I admired immensely because if you look at Ray Wilkins, fantastic football player. But the biggest thing of the whole lot was his CV. What a CV he had. You know, a real... You could only dream about that as a wee boy who wanted to make their way in football. You know, just have a look one day. Run it up again, Andy, on your computer and have a look at your CV and see the clubs that he played for. The best clubs in Europe throughout. So many international caps. Just a a CV to die for. Without a shadow of a doubt. And he was a smashing football player. And I met him a few times, lucky enough. I met him once at Ibrox with Ali McCoyson. He was a gentleman, an absolute gentleman. Real nice fella to talk to. Uh, one of the guys you could stand with a glass of wine in your hand and have a right good conversation. You know, He was open to to all sorts of the conversation as well. Very knowledgeable. And I always thought he was very good in TV. I thought it was a class act on TV at that at that time when you know guys like Ray Wilkins and that were getting involved in, in doing that. But, well... You would have paid a buck or two for his CV. Don't worry about that. His bank manager would be absolutely delighted with Ray Wilkins. News. Yeah. I'll, I'll read through them in a wee second. But you're
0: talking about him on TV. I always loved when he was on Italian football, where yeah. he was always he was always talking to the kids that were watching and telling them this is what to do. You know, follow the example of this. And I always liked that. I always, you know, it was it wasn't just about explaining. You know, just saying what was going on in the game. It was actually about teaching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I always. Had a great that. insight. Yeah, so you, so here are some of the here are the clubs: Chelsea, Man United, AC Milan, Paris Saint Germain, Rangers, QPR, Crystal Palace, Hibs, Millwall, and Leighton Orient. Okay, we can we can forget about some of the the later ones there. Uh, I but, disregard that Hibs more. But I <laughs> throw the about the window right away. <laughs> uh, yeah, England as well. He's managed at many clubs, but yeah, I mean, just that's exceptional. Exceptional. That
1: was a real CV at the time when I played football. Hmm. you know you just the things were just out with the bouncy most people i know gary lineker went to barcelona and a lot, a lot of the boys soonest as, soonest as went out to italy and uh, was there there for Russia was in italy for 20 minutes as well so you know they, they did but that that was you know if you look at that because he, he spent in footballing terms considerable amount of time at these clubs that he was there you know the big clubs so it wasn't any sort of fly-by-night flash in the pan hmm. routine he went there Produced stuff at every club that he played at, uh, it, it, and he was a quality, quality football player. I knew a very good friend he has a fellow called Tommy Langley who played for Chelsea at the same time when, when Ray Wilkins, he actually captained that Chelsea team at eighteen years of age, and uh, I've met him a few times in London with Tommy, and uh, he liked a social afternoon as well, but you know, and so did Tommy, and I quite liked it myself. So we used to spend some nice afternoons at. Good and in Kempton Park, you know. Nice fella, no, good fella, and top, top player.
2: So his article there is about uh, what he did basically during these summer holidays, uh, the closed season and the pre-season. He talks about where he, these holiday resorts, and he also talks about having to watch his weight and uh, always putting on weight uh, when he comes back. How were you, Andy, for your closed season and your coming back to pre-season
1: training? I loved it. Absolutely fantastic. Just to count the last week of my holiday doing, thinking of seven days, six days, five, you know. Never put an ounce on. I was out every morning running in Girvan Beach. and uh, yeah, Less of that shit to do, yeah. <laughs> we don't get down the road with that. Uh, I hated pre-season. Detested it for the very first one that ever did. Pre-season was entirely... Different to the pre-seasons we see now, which is basically a fortnight away and holiday, come back and you're given some training schedule and diet sheet and don't come back two kilos of what you leave. We didn't. We had six. Some at the start at Celtic Park. I remember one of our first pre-season getting ten weeks holiday. You know, and that was imagine getting ten weeks holiday now, but that was the opportunity to to recover at that time. You know, they didn't ask you to do anything. They just said go away and relax and. Get all the aches and pains and get all the nooks and the bumps that you've probably carried way you your season and just go and enjoy yourself, do the things that you're not able to do while you're, you're involved in the football season. You never seen a football ball for about four weeks a day, 10. It was just running up and down the hills and Bonnington Moor Golf Course. And, ah, oh, it was, you know, you put in the mileage with it and it was the agony of a long distance runner. That's what it was and on, you'd be about six weeks in before they'd finally bring a bag of balls out one morning, and then they would leave them lying for about two hours and wouldn't allow you to use them. They were only teasing you a wee bit. The boys were out the day, we're going to get a kick at the ball, and they would leave it to the foley day, you know. that was, But, you know, I wasn't too bad at Celtic Park, but I suffered a wee bit because we were part-time at Morton. So I didn't have the full calendar year of being a full-time player. And then my second year going back, I had some problems well I didn't have problems I discovered Smirnoff and it didn't go very well with Guinness (laughs) so I put on quite a bit of weight and uh, I remember the club sending me a place called Stobo Castle Health Farm and Jimmy I can't remember his second name Jimmy Steele sorry excuse me Jimmy Steele took me down left me at the front door and came back and picked me up in 10 days time and I had lost a stone and 4 pounds so I'd left Capelo, returned 10 days later. All the players thought I was down at Newcastle, for excitement Newcastle United. I was at Stobo Castle, and I lost the stone in £2. Came back up, moatled the season at Celtic Park, scored. And the players thought I was unwell. All my teammates thought I was unwell. I'd lost the stone in £3 or something. I <laughs> thought something rang with me. And I went back down, had another three or four days at Stobo Castle after that game. Came back up and I'd lost the stone and a half. And that took that's how I got rid of the weight that year. So the following preseason I thought I'd do the same again, but it didn't work out that way. Oh. It cost them too much money the first time. So they weren't <laughs> going to do it a second time. Uh, but that that was the way I, I used to have to suffer it, you know. And I was prone to putting weight on at that time, you know, and that's a that's got to be the understatement of the day. You'll not hear a mere an understatement than that. The day I was prone to putting weight on. You know, I played up. Run about the 14 and a half, you know, 14, in between 14 and a half and 14.10 was my weight for playing. So I was always a big fella anyway. And I found it difficult to move that when I did put it on during the summertime. It took me about two, two months into the season before I, I get back to any kind of shape at all.
0: So you, you survived uh, Ghislaine Sands
1: with yep. Jock Wallace when you were at Motherwell. What was that like? Well, I had signed that morning uh, and big joke, I just arranged that day to take all the players away. So big joke done that at Rangers and it was highly successful. You got great press and, you know, you get into the players' heads at that time at Ibrox, that so that was to be important. You know, the Gullin Sands and doing all that. And made a big thing about it. But by the time it had got to me and big joke and that at Motherwell, it was merely a... Was, how can I put it? It was merely a gimmick. It yeah. was merely a... You know, you thought, I'm getting in... They're termed as being the laziest player in the Premier League, you know. We'll organise Golan and I'll take him up there. It was hard. Yeah. It was difficult. But the players at Muller before that hadn't seen Golan, So it was a PR stunt, you know. Get all the press boys up and take photos of Andy on, He's been sick after it and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. But we never went again. Right. So, you know, that, that was a wee big joke, was it, that time? You know, he wanted people who read things about Motherwell, especially if Motherwell made a sign like that. Hmm. Uh, it was important for that to happen, but I go, him alright. sorry, it was okay.
0: So, uh, he, so he was just uh, looking to kill that story about you being lazy and unfit and things like that? With that. Well, what
1: he was saying, more or less, was, you know, I'll, you know, I'll sort Andy of Ritchie Right. And I thought, that's great, I, I don't mind that, you know. that uh, he cared a wee bit? Uh. And he'd been chasing me for a long time at uh, at Capital, you know, I'd heard before the end of that season. And I had, the only thing I had done with them and sorted it, the only thing I could do in my contract at that time was that the money I was earning at Capital was based on Premier League football. So if we didn't stay in the Premier League, I could move. And that was the only decent thing I'd done in that contract. So we got relegated that year. So it meant that I could I could move on, you know. And that's what happened. Big Jock had spoken to me before the end of the season and, and then he made a bid even before pre-season started. But uh, Morton wouldn't let me go and it was only for £30,000. So we'd come for a million pound to £30,000, which is a fair old trap. <laughs> uh, but they still wouldn't let me go. And I couldn't understand. So I, I fell out with everybody again and done all that nonsense or complaining about it. And then I get the phone call uh, that, that morning to meet up with Hal, and we went to Mullerwell and done the deal. And it wasn't until we came out, he came out to Mullerwell that I said to him, what did you huddle on at the end and make all that nonsense start up over again for? He says we're in the process of selling season tickets to our supporters, and he says we've got the majority of them all away now, so you know. They didn't want to announce the fact that I was moving on until they'd sold 80% of their season tickets. I thought even the last day, down the other, trying to stuff it up me, you know. <laughs> held it off, held it off to the to the go-the season tickets away. But I enjoyed myself with Big Joke at Mulro. Mm. I really did. What he told me was what he was going to do. He played me a couple of games early on in the League Cup. And then he left me out and I had to go and work on my aim to get fit again with the late Joe Wark, who was a was a coach here there, And we were working two, sometimes three times a day earlier. And I was in I was in good nick again. I was just beginning to come round. I had the wee cartilage operation done and tidied my knee up. Really beginning to enjoy my football again. And then Rangers came in and took my joke back to Ibrox. And we brought manager in, Bobby Watson. Uh, well, for the first day I arrived, let it be known he didn't like me. So uh, I wasn't going to be playing in his team. Uh, so all of a sudden, if I go in there and get myself fit and get ready to play. And then my joke leaving to me yeah, or less being told no, nah, you're not wanted here. You know that was. But I enjoyed my time here. Big joke. what is does it say? He did what he said on the tin.
0: Yeah.
1: You know he didn't. He didn't mock about. He didn't kid on. He was. His tactics were anything special. I remember a guy called Tommy Ahara said to me. Tommy played at Motherwell that time. He says, "I don't know why you're here." Says that. He says because. Big joke. Big joke. Loves football players. He says he loves right good football players, but he just doesn't like them in his team. He says so oh, You're a about and then that, you're going to do is really going to get them gone, you know. <laughs> but it didn't work out that way, Aye. you know. I played in the middle of the park a few games with a very young Gary McAllister,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. Even at 17, you could see the quality in Gary McAllister and a wee boy in the middle of the park called Ali Mocklin, who was a right industrious wee midfield player. Both of them went to Leicester and later on in their careers as well, together, you know. But they were a good partnership, and uh, I managed to fit into that. Not too bad. So I enjoyed my spell at Mullerwee with big joke. yeah. You know, the spell at Mullerwee I had with Bobby Watson after that was, was enough to make me quit the game.
0: It's crazy going from that, from, as you say, getting to love the game again and playing, and suddenly to have it ripped away from you. And, mm-hmm. You know, you think. Oh, it was massive for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I've stated publicly as well that, you know, for an early, early age in my footballing career, I had problems with my mental health. Uh, and at that time, as you can well imagine, that was a major, major situation. I'd went through being in the low, I'd been relegated at Morton to You know, I was a Mullow supporter, for, I was a wee boy. My family are all Mullow supporters. About 50 shares in Mullow the day that I signed. Uh, I was just so delighted to be there. I, you, you mentioned that, Andy, I got my love back for the game again through big joke and, you know, somebody having a wee bit of faith in me again. And then within the space of him going back to Ibrooks and Bobby Watson coming in a week later, you know, I'm mere or less told that my services is only required uh, and I wouldn't play for Motherwell again. You know, so football for somebody with mental health problems at that time was a roller coaster anyway, which just made this a hundred times worse. Uh, I was really looking forward to getting back in and working my big joke. And, you know, I think I don't think I, I played two games after I left Motherwell and I finished at twenty-seven. But Mother was Motherwell was a tin lidded it for me, as they say. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a situation that I had any any control you know, the manager just came in and the manager's decision was final at that time. Hey, we move over to pages eight and nine then.
2: Mm-hmm. So pages oh, I eight and nine is uh, Freedom, Their Goal, is the is the heading. And it's all about the film Escape uh, to Victory, uh, which was being filmed at that point. Uh, the £5 million World War II prison escape film, just finishing production in Budapest. Yeah. And highlights is a soccer match between the German national team and a side of prisoners captured by the Nazis. Uh, and there's a picture, a few of the, the, the stars there, uh, Michael Caine, Pelley,
1: Sylvester Stallone, Bobby Moore. Yep. Yeah. And uh
0: Ozzy, Ozzy Ardiles. John Watt was in it as well. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll move I'll
1: move on to this. So I've got a full team photo Oh
0: of, aye. So we can oh, zoom weird. in a wee bit. Where did that photograph come from? So that that was, that... That was in shoot that was a different magazine. It wasn't in this one. Um but I aye. thought I would include it because it's it's an absolute brilliant. It's a brilliant photograph. So we've got Gosh. in there Russell Osman, Paul Van Hems, Mike Summerby, Sylvester Stallone, John work Kazi Denya, uh, uh-huh. Soren Lindstedt, Halver Torsen, Ozzy Adilis, Michael Kane, Pelly, Bobby Moore, and Co. Prince. It's it's a pretty. Yeah. Apart from um, obviously Sylvester Stallone, who was absolutely shocking. His his uh, goalkeeping technique was absolutely abysmal. In that, it's a pretty good team.
1: You made Roy Baines look like a goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's what, some big names there. It just, it just shows you, you know, they've looked at that at that time and they've been scouring Europe. Now, with all due respect, you know, you think about Europe now and if you'd put up a team like that, there would be probably nine Europeans and South Americans that we all know instantly by, yeah. by looking at their pictures, you know. And to be honest with you, you know, even at that time, Co I how would they have known who Co was? Hmm. You know, Kaji I know. Did Kaji Medina you know, come and play for Aberdeen at one time? I don't know. I think he was you know, uh, Man City. Man City. Man City. Man City. Or. That's yeah. right. Uh, and I think, funny enough, he was. Well, I don't mean funny enough. But, yeah, I think he died in a car crash as well. Yeah, if my memory did. serves me correct. And he was a fantastic player. You Neil know, Soren Linsted. You know, not really household names. They hmm. would be household names now. Yeah. You know, but at that time, but uh, this films out maybe two or three times a year now, isn't it? It's a bit like Spartacus. It appears on your telly, and you've seen it, and you you, you know every bit about it. You know, uh, and yet you still watch it again. It's one of these films. It's it's compulsive viewing. Some of it's that bad. It's compulsive viewing as well. You know. I th- You're right. I, I think it was. Um, a lot it was filmed. Actually, in
0: um, Norfolk, so that that's why there was the Ipswich connection. Is because yeah. it, the the it was getting filmed down that way. But um, yeah, great. It's it's it seems to be one of those movies. It's just turned into a cult movie, and I I I, I really enjoy it. Um, yeah, I quite enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy it as well. Some of the, some
1: of the footballing bits in it, you know. Pelly with the old Mansfield Hotspurs on, you know the old laced up boots in the front like that. Yeah. Bobby Moore wasn't much of an actor as well, you know, great captain, but no much of no much of an actor. Yeah, and I hear uh, John John
0: Walk's single line was dubbed because he couldn't understand him. Uh, that's yeah. what I hear. Um, although I don't really remember that. At the moment when you watch it, I don't remember
1: it feeling dubbed or anything like that. But um, I go. thought he got—I thought he got the bit because he silly hairstyle and that big moustache that he had. He <laughs> looked like a football player for the for the thirties and the forties. yeah uh, all yeah. right uh, The acting was shocking in it, but yeah, uh, the story was good, wasn't it? Mm. And there was a happy ending at the end. That's what, that's
0: all that mattered. Yeah. So what? What about you? said have you ever been? Um, Close to appearing, like a shot of glory or something like that. Have you ever been close to appearing in any any football movies or
1: no, any movies no. at all? I don't, I don't really know any other ones other
0: than that one. You know, that, have you not seen a shot a shot of glory? The one with Ro- Ali McCoist, the uh, Robert deval I mean, there we there, go. There's there's two of the top top people in it: Robert Duvall and Ali McCoist. I I I hope you've seen that
1: film. Sh- so I'm good to be honest. I've uh, never seen it. John McVeigh used to try and get me to see it all the time. He yeah. used to ask me, have well, you not know, seen that film yet? I think John was in it as well. <laughs> you aye, know? Aye. He, did, he did a pretty good part in it, yeah. Pretty good part in us. So, but I, so he, he tells me he was a good actor as well, John McVeigh, you know, but uh, I, I've never seen it, hmm. you know. That's the only footballing movie that I ever remember sitting down to watch. It's it's, uh, it's difficult...
0: It's difficult getting... Um, the the feel is whether it be football whether it be American football or anything like that it's difficult to get it right, in moving right. The, and moving and th- I think especially football it needs to be played because my wh- one of my things about a shot of glory is um, I think the football scenes are really good in it and a bit a bit mm-hmm. slowed down but they feel quite realistic and such that you maybe think they said just go out and play a game of football and we'll take some of the the shots and make it all work whereas mm-hmm. You know, in um, Escape to Victory, you've got Paley doing that flick with his heels over the head and yeah. stuff, and it's all slow motion, and it doesn't feel like football.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, Pele looked like an ordinary player in that film. That was a problem. Yeah, uh, it was manufactured, do it like that.
0: Hmm. You know,
1: you didn't really... For a guy that was brought up, me as a young boy, my only football being when I went to the cinema, and the Pathy News used to yeah. show the old football reels, during that, that was that was my first introduction to 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 watching football on telly, you know, and that took me back to that, you know, there when I was thinking about that film, it was all manufactured stuff at, you know, Bobby Moore pointing and, then, you know, putting his con up and telling him, to, you know, Bob, I don't think I ever saw Bobby Moore do that once in his whole career, you know, <laughs> uh, and and as you said, Pelly, and our deal is doing the reflex as well,
0: mm.
1: you know, it's... But, uh, I Think they're hard today, these sports movies. You yeah. know, I really do to, to to grab the concept of what you're you're trying to portray on the screen like that. And football well, must be the worst of the lot today, yeah. well, you know. Yeah, I, a, yeah. I, I think,
0: sorry, Andy, I think you've just got to step back when you watch something like this or a shot of glow. You've got to step back and say, Listen, I'm not watching a documentary, I'm watching a piece of entertainment. So I'm, that's the only way I'm going to. I'm not going to Barry Norman it or Jonathan Rossett and you know, right. think about the the photography and the lighting and stuff. I'm just going to watch it and enjoy it. And that's what I do with yeah. these
1: sort of things. I yeah. did with that. I remember, really enjoyed it, as I said to you. Great story. Mm. Great ending. That's what you want in any film, isn't it? Yeah. It's something that you can engage with. You can engage with them because, you know, you didn't really see as much about footballers out with the footballing context. Yeah, You know, something different like that, being in a movie, you know, Having a bit of story attached to it, you know, you can get involved a wee bit more with it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I oh, like Michael Kine. He's <laughs> he was brilliant. What Aye. a player he was. Aye. I'm sure he must have had a career with Late and Orient or something.
0: <laughs> I Dunno.
1: what was your thoughts on the, the movie, Tom? I if...
2: I I I I enjoy it. I haven't seen it for a, for a few years, but I it's one of those ones that comes on the bank holiday or something like that, mm. isn't it? and of course there's, there's too many good uh, faces in it as, as well it just makes it entertaining apparently Sylvester Stallone wanted to score the winning penalty somebody sort of had to explain to him that goalkeepers don't really
1: take penalties so I So think... a bit like Robert Duvall's stuff in the, in, the, in the other movie you're talking about as well you know that everybody explain everything to him before it happened
0: <laughs> well the, the, in that one Robert Duvall obviously based his whole role on like a Bob Shankley, or someone, Bill Sh- you know, one of the Shankleys, that that sort yeah. of um, approach to it that he did. Um, but for me, it, it was all right. His Scottish accent wasn't the best, but it was, um, who else? Michael Keaton was in it as well. And yep. it, Michael Keaton just hammed it right up, you know, and it, 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 that, it, he was my disappointment for that movie. He was my disappointment. Um, I, I, I would have hoped for better from that. But you should watch it, Andy, honestly. You, there's, there's loads of. Loads of um, Scottish football names in it. I can't even think off the top of my head um, some of them, but um, yeah, it's, it's it's really good. I I would recommend you watch it. I'll tell you what. I'll I'll give you a link to it. A wee special link to it so you can watch it on the fly as well. Well,
1: yeah, somebody'll need to set that up for me. <laughs> they
2: do. Aye. I know you you've made a wee appearance uh, in theatre though, Andy, haven't you? Uh...
1: Yes. Stage, screen, and musical, Tom. Yes, I think it was David Carswell's play, Moneton. Yes, right. yeah. I had I had been doing some stuff with David for for some promotional stuff for it. I'd never met the guy before, and he, he, had, he had came up to bill so and picked me up. We did some video promotional stuff, and we are talking about you know going back in time. Al McGraw was here, both did uh, capital in the boardroom, and I got to. Got chatting with Dave on the way down and up in the car. As I say, I'd never met him before. And we're talking in general about what was going to be happening. The night before I'd been with my pal, Tony Roper. Right. right. James he caught her. And James he says, What well, are you in the play? I said, What do you mean? He said, Well, it's a play about Morton and you you must be in it. I said, no. I'm just going down to talk about Morton and a wee bit about the play and a promotional. And I mentioned to David Carswell that. And he phoned me. He dropped me off and then he phoned me about an hour later. He said, Andy, do you mind if I put a wee bit into the play? A wee, wee slot in the play and you maybe even come in and do a wee cameo role for us. So that's how it all came round about. Uh, Davey rewrote wee bits of the play uh, and I did a wee cameo bit about, you know, 1976 and how things at Morton had been particularly well for a few seasons before that with the club and seventy six 1980 It's considered by a lot of people down there to be the best years that they had for a long long time so that was the way he worked it in and yeah I enjoyed it it was good fun and the rest of the cast and everybody there were brilliant because they knew I knew the centre of a donut about acting or trying to put on something on the stage so I thought we'll just kick that into touch right away and I'll just be me because that's who I'm playing anyway yeah. so uh, I buggered about with some of the lines that he David had written for me as well, and we managed to get through it, and I think people enjoyed it, you know, we had three great nights down at the Beacon Theatre, doing in Green Up, full houses for the people, uh, they enjoyed it, and we had a bit of laugh, and a sing-song, I love a sing-song, <laughs> uh, so we had that at the end of it as well, really enjoyable. I'm doing it again, by the way. Right, right so uh, April next year? April next year, but I hope I'm getting the starring role this time, you know. <laughs> uh,
2: well
1: we'll maybe get maybe get you and Davy on at, at, at the time we talk about to talk about it then. Yeah. Ah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good man, Carswell. He does well. You know, he's a talented fella. Yeah, uh, I just got a sort of wee message from him he's invited me along for the opening night of the Tommy Burns uh, yeah. show at Celtic Park and I'm really, really looking forward to that. You know, Thomas Palinines and quite rightly, you know, something like this has cropped up. It's a great idea for Davy yeah. on a great subject. And I'm 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 really looking forward to it. I'm, and I don't know nothing at all about it. I'm just going to turn up like I don't know one word that's been written. I'm just going to turn up and hopefully I'm sure I will enjoy every minute like everybody else.
2: I agree. Will we move over then? Uh, to the next couple of, next couple of pages, pages ten and eleven. So the big headline there is Ray Kennedy to quit Liverpool. So for me, Ray Kennedy was one of the seven some heroes of that great Liverpool team in the seventies and eighties. So
1: a guy in the centre of the midfield. Do you remember much about him, Andy? Yeah, yeah. I remember the great spell at Arsenal. Absolutely fantastic. One of the modern day, you know, left-sided midfield players could play and use the ball in the middle of the park. But his main, one of his main assets he had was, you know, his power in the air and his support for midfield to get up in the box and scored some magnificent goals and was a success everywhere he went. Big player for everybody. I was a top-class player down there as well. He was one of the boys that, you know, you could see moving about at that time because there was a lot of shuffling of money down in England at that time. You know, one club would spend some, and then one club would spend the money that they gave them. And that's the way it worked in there, you know. I think, the Brian,
2: I think Brian Clough said that at one time if somebody cashed one of the, the cheques, the whole game would go bankrupt.
1: <laughs> that's what would happen. It was past the... Well, he probably... Stated it with the cheque, but it was passed on with the money. You know, as soon as a club sold somebody and, and got some money in, right away they wanted to use it and they brought somebody else. So there's was, was a merry-go-round of the whole thing, you know. We have two or three clubs did deals in. You know, some of the smaller clubs got a wee bit as well if they were interested. But that was where the money was generated then. The big money, sorry. You know, I don't know where the money comes now for, for football transfer money, you know. But at that time, it went run about half a dozen, maybe eight clubs. And everybody wanted a wee bit of it, you know. But he was a super, super player. I enjoyed his spell at Arsenal. Yeah, Kennedy, I really did. I thought he was it was good everywhere, but it was extra special there.
2: Yeah. Uh, so we note there it says uh, both Kennedy and Teny Mcdermott want want to play abroad to have one year of their existing contracts with Liverpool to fulfil. I think Ray Kennedy ended up playing at Swansea, and I mm-hmm. believe Teny Mcdermott played a wee time in Cyprus.
1: Towards the end of his the career, I see the shoot magazine got it right again there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wanted to finish at the top. So, uh, Andy Smith,
2: have you spotted anything else on those on those two pages? beat there be, be snippets? Um, let, let me see what I've picked
1: out. So this one, um, Sam there. Aye. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's 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 moved from he's moved to Sunderland, I think, from mm-hmm. Bolton. Um, but he feels sorry that He's moved because what was it he says about it? He he, he was letting Derby County down, um, aye. so yeah, so Derby County were in for him as well, but he, he moved to Sunderland instead. And he, he just says it feels terrible. I think the Derby County manager didn't feel too good about it and thinks he was, um, he was tapped up a bit or
1: that he <laughs> um, liked a weed packet in the game, big Sam, didn't he? Aye, aye, um. Aye some moves as a player and uh, even their moves as a manager you know mm. the, the, one of the ones I was just picking
0: out is this, Ballymena United's Northern Ireland youth international midfield prospect Tony McCall and they're spelled it M-C-C-A-U-L but I saw a, an article in the the Belfast Belfast Telegraph and, and they spelled it M-C-C-A-L-L so I, I don't know which, if one is an Irish um, spelling of it but he was mm-hmm. Ulster's Young Player of the Year in 1980, and his promising teenage cousin, Gervais McCall, who also operates in midfield with Newry Juniors, Hereford United, um, is currently interesting in Man United. Now, Tony McCall was apparently link- likened to Brian Robson, not just skill-wise, but also he liked to go in where it hurts. So he actually ended up injuring himself quite a lot by the challenges he was putting in. He did get frustrated by all his injuries and he moved to the USA to do some coaching and he's apparently there, even now still coaching. Um he's 112 appearances for Ballymena, scored seven goals. Um so I thought that was just a wee interesting thing. Another one that I looked at was Yep, former Aberdeen fullback Steve Ritchie. And look at look how they're spelt Ritchie there, Andy. They're
1: yeah, mis- yeah. Just missing out yeah. the T.
0: That happens to be regular. <laughs> Uh, has joined Yovo Town after being given a free transfer from Torquay United. Steve, the brother of Bristol City, Tom, turned down a move to fourth division side, Doncaster Rovers, to join the Lions League. Uh, so Steve was born in Edinburgh, played for Bristol City, played for Morton, um, yes. Hereford, Aberdeen,
1: uh, Torquay United, and then on to Yovo Town. I mean, he was the guy that scored the winning goal for Aberdeen against Rangers that day and swung on the crossbar. Was it a winning goal? Yeah. I th- was it, did
0: Rangers know one 2-1 that game? I think that was the it was the one he missed and Peter McCloy was yeah, absolutely, but I, th- right. I, th- I thought Rangers won that game. Did they not? They maybe have,
1: yeah, yeah, they could have done. He played, he played at Morton as a left fullback and I played against his brother Tom, Tom when I, he played at Bristol when I was at Morton. We played them a couple of times in the Anglo-Scottish Cup right. uh, he was a good he was a good striker good goal scoring striker for Bristol mm. but I think Stevie Richie was down there at Morton for a, a season a season and a half before I think before he went to Aberdeen yeah yeah.
0: he, he was at Hereford he went to Hereford in between Morton and Aberdeen um, right. but um, Tom Ritchie, as you say he was at Bristol City twice the second spell he was um, managed by um, Terry Cooper uh, mm-hmm. who recently passed away as well yeah um, yeah yeah, that's that's the ones I've picked out from there, Tom. I don't know if you want to. As we've uh,
2: at the bottom of page ten, it says Baker's back. Joe Baker, the former Notes Forest and Arsenal centre forward, who was one of the first British players to sample Italian football with a spell at Turin. Has taken his first steps towards a managerial career by becoming manager coach to the East of Scotland Junior Side, House United. Yeah, just surprising, like, a guy that's a big player with all that experience.
1: Fantastic uh, a, fella, Tom. Absolutely fantastic guy. I was lucky enough to meet him. I went to the latter stages in my career, when I, and a couple of months before I taken up a job down in London, an offer. I got an offer I couldn't refuse from a guy called Tommy Fagan at Albion Rovers. And he offered me something like eighteen quid a week to go and be the player manager for a couple of weeks at Albion Rovers, which I did. I don't know. I must have been must have been unwell at that time when I took that job. You know. And uh, when I got out there, there was a guy there, Joe Baker. And he had been there for a wee while, Joe, helping out and doing whatever. I knew, I didn't know Joe Baker, but I knew all about his career. Again, a bit earlier than Ray Wilkins, but, you know, just just look at some of the teams that he'd played for. And uh, he was there. And Joe was doing everything there. Trainer, coach, uh, sponge man. Cleaned up the dressing rooms. He'd done everything. A lovely, lovely fella. And he worked with me there for about six or eight weeks. And I got to know him really well. Great insight for the game. He knew the game inside it. Things hadn't been... Life hadn't been particularly good to him at that time, you know? Maybe, uh, well, Joe had had a wee bit of a drinking problem and he was in the process of trying to sort that out. At that time, he had joined AA and was working really hard at trying to do that again. Trying to get his life back in order again. And I remember after about six weeks, I I couldn't take any Mary Tommy Fagan out at Albion Rovers, you know. And I went in to resign and Joe was there and Joe says, oh, I I don't want you to go, Andy. I'm I'm enjoying this building here. I says, no, Joe, you go in and take this, Joe Burner, and continue to do what you're doing and things will be brilliant. you know." But I remember thinking to myself, that was a guy who achieved a lot of things in the game and really didn't know how good he was. Mm -hmm. I always got that feeling of Joe Baker he was all I don't know whether it's just because he was a shy fella you know but he really didn't didn't know how well he was thought of in the game and how well people would look at his career in the game and admire it as well he he just wanted to be involved in football and he wanted to be involved around about football people Uh, and that was that was helping him get his life back in order as well you know and Joe did stay on I can't remember who came in at the back Davy Proven, ex Rangers yeah, man, yeah. came in and him and Joe got Albion Rovers promotion. I think the following season after that, you know, which hadn't been heard day for 50 years in Cobridge But, you know, Joe Baker, just loved the fella. I would love to have been running with Joe. I used to meet him. I used to meet him in Motherwell. He stayed in Wisha. I'd meet him and his wife when we were at Shopman, what have you, and a great half hour conversation. Brighten up your day, Joe Baker. Lovely fella. Uh, So top of page 11 there, we've got Ian
2: Botham should retire. (laughs) Uh, England cricket captain Ian Botham should hang up his soccer boots. That is the view of Ray Ellingworth, the former Test star who now manages Yorkshire. Uh, Ellingworth says of Botham's decision to play for Scunthorpe United again next season to risk injury at such an important stage of his career seems pointless I appreciate that Ian relishes a challenge but it doesn't matter whether he measures up to 4th Division standards or not, he's putting his main job on the line for a few games of football uh, Ian could be earning £50,000 a year as captain of England he has a cricket world at his feet and I fear that some Division 4 defender may put Ian <laughs> out of the winter two of the West yeah. End, End least starting early next year so yeah that was it
0: Ian Botham would play For Scunthorpe United In the cricket off season He's, he's actually wearing A Chelsea shirt there So I don't know If yeah. that was a testimonial Or something He's played
2: in it was A charity game Or yeah. something
1: I've been running About the game For 50 years And I've never Ever spoke to anybody In fact But I've ever seen Ian Botham play <laughs> You know I don't know Whether that's one Of these spoof things That people just put up At that time you know I don't know ever said, oh, I remember going to Scunthorpe one night To see Scunthorpe And Oldham, And Ian Botham was playing hmm.
0: That's that's a line I've never heard. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm sure I remember at the
0: time, Andy, on the news and stuff, or you know, on sports things about that. Um, and I've I've I have seen other photographs and things of him in action. Um, I don't know if I've seen any video of it, but I remember at the time, this being a thing. In of Botham was playing football as well as as well as cricket. Yes, oh,
2: I
1: remember reading about it. I remember mm. hearing about it. Yeah. You know, never seen. You know, you see a picture like that there. Obviously, mm. uh, tells you he, he, he was in a football strip at one time. But <laughs> don't know, Could you tell me what position he played? I think it was midfield. Was it? Was it? Yeah. Oh, but it's just what And I think to myself, and I like that wee bit when it says he could be earning fifty thousand pounds a year. Some obscure wee right back at a second division club down in England's on fifty grand a week now. Mm. You know, that's, that just shows you where, how life and football has moved on considerably. 50 grand a week in the championships are poor wage now. And he, the top cricketer in the world, more or less, was getting £50,000 a year. Mm.
0: The Scottish FA planning a crackdown on tour companies who advertise package deals for Scotland Games Abroad. They will not issue them with tickets. Only members of the Scottish Travel Club will get tickets for Games Abroad, says SFA Secretary Ernie Walker. So that, that was back then, them taking control over the whole... Um... Nothing's changed, eh? The yeah. Scottish stripper. Yep. <laughs> um, was there anything... No, that was the only stuff from
2: there. So over the next page there, we get got Tartan talk with Danny McGreen, okay. And uh, he's talking about uh, all-weather pitches, no thanks. Uh, and There's a picture there of Trevor Francis playing for the Detroit Express there in, in, in America. And the uh, first we paragraph is an experiment at Helenvale Park in the east of Glasgow. Once a favourite training spot for Celtic could mean that senior football matches in Scotland need never be postponed because of bad weather. At least that is the possibility of distant... If distant... The possible, if distant, conclusion after the opening of the £250,000 AstroTurf playing surface, which is only a long goal kick from Celtic Park. Did you play in many... Uh, uh,
1: tough pitches in your career Andy? No nope. uh, I don't think I played a football game on an tough pitch I need to be corrected but I, I don't think I did they were relatively well in America at that time you know I remember you know I, I, I nearly made it I nearly made it again to to New York Cosmos at the time when Eddie Fermani was the manager and he was a pal of Hal Stewart's and they wanted to take players out in the summertime and play there. And obviously they played on AstroTurf across there. Uh, you know, Pelly and Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto and all these guys were still there. You know, it was it was a uh, footballing circus they were playing at that time. They played on AstroTurf. But the Scottish FA cancelled all the temporary work permits that year. The last one to get a work permit that year was Bobby Lennox who went out to Houston. And I remember sitting up at Park Gardens. Alfie Conn and me were sitting up at Park Gardens, waiting to get our temporary transfers signed to go. And they stopped giving them out. Too many players were were, were abusing the system. You were gonna you were getting signed for a pound. with New you and then they would sell you back at the end of the season to Morton for a pound. And the SFA cancelled all temporary work transfers. I think Alfie was going to Toronto or somewhere like that. And I, and I was going to go to New York. So that would been about the only time. So I never played a professional match on them. But I think I would have liked the AstroTurf. I remember playing many, many games for the legendary club, Dukla Pumpherson Sawmill and Tannery, nil. And we used to get taken to AstroTurf parts because our old legs couldn't handle the grass anymore. And I, I quite enjoyed it. The ball sat upright. You could control the ball. If you can control it and pass it, you'll always play on that surface. Uh, and I was nearly into my 40s by that time, but I enjoyed it. And, well, i see the championship. i see about a bit of championship but by now. And we've got Aki's now coming down in Kilmarnock. Who would ever thought? I would never have thought Kilmarnock would ever be played in AstroTurf. Never thought Aki's would ever play professional games in AstroTurf. 40 years later, you know, we're looking at the vast majority of parks now in Scotland as being AstroTurf parks. Yeah. I don't know if it makes make sure that the games are going to be on every Saturday because you got got Turf on, but uh, it helps. But I would enjoy enjoyed it. I don't think a lot of players from my era would enjoy playing in Turf though. So, so I read, Andy,
0: about the possibility of you going to the States, and um, you would have joined George Best there at the
1: time, I think. Is that right? Uh, no, Best was in Florida. Right. He was in Florida with Gerd Muller at Tampa Bay with Rodney Marsh. Now, the Americans had Yashin and goals, Carlos Alberto, uh, Beckenbauer, an uh, Italian striker up front, uh, Bog, Bogdanovich, uh, they had a big Yugoslavian. Dennis Turek in Manchester City was there at New York at the time as well. What they were doing was New York Cosmos or playing the old uh, supporters game. If you had a community in New York, for talk's sake, the Brazilian community, and the, the Spanish, or the Yugoslavians, a lot of Yugoslavians at that time in New York, they picked, and in inverted commas, the best player in the country, and they brought them to New York, so they encouraged that community to buy tickets for the New York Cosmos game. Yeah. That was where they did it. And that's why... You know, they had a broad cross-section of people from all over the world. You know, they didn't have enough American players at that time. They certainly do now. Uh, but they, they bring it in based on how big your community was in New York to see whether you could sell tickets or not. Peli sold it across the, the range of that. But, you know, they tried to keep it a Yugoslavian, Italian, Bogdanovich. His brother controlled the mafia there in New York. So he was he was a big signing for them as well. And Eddie Fermani, the English manager, he was, he was manager at Cosmos at that time. Yeah. Actually, mentioned
0: what you're talking about there. I don't know if you read it further in this art, in this magazine, where Rodney Marsh has quit at New York because the mm-hmm. owners tried to force him to play more Spanish players so they could get more of the local Spanish community in through the doors. And I, I thought that was that was really interesting. But yeah, it just backs up what you said there. Yeah, that was the
1: way they worked it. You know, I think Bobby Lennox went to Philadelphia if my memory serves me correct i my old pal Jimmy Bone, here had a great time up there. I think he was in Toronto. He was with Toronto Blizzard. We had an old buddy of mine who passed away there. Bobby Prentice, who used to play yeah. with Hearts, left winger. Yeah. The two of them. And Drew Busby. The three of them played earlier there for a while there in Toronto. And they had some time out there, I'll tell you. That was where they come up with the original phrase, drink Canada dry. <laughs> they three were trying to do it, you know.
0: <laughs> so uh, what was it that, that made it not happen for you, Andy,
1: going out to the States? They didn't, they wouldn't allow temporary transfers. Right. So it meant that you had to buy the player outright. Okay. You know, and Eddie Fermani had said something like, we'll give £50,000 for the player. We're back to that old one again, you know, £50,000 mm-hmm. was never going to be enough. <laughs> it was mere or less, de- you know, you were getting, you were getting a real bucket of cash at that time for doing it, you know? Yeah. You know, I was fiddling about for hundred and. £10 a week down at capital where I could have went to America for £900 a week, you know. Mm. That was the way it was working. Play through the summer season. Make a few bobby. Uh, come back a better person for it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but the Americans didn't pay transfer fees. That that They still don't to a certain extent. You know, they, they expect uh, the player to be as big an earner as the club as well now and did at that time. You know, they would have paid you good big salaries to go across there in America, but they don't pay transfer fees. So Hal was never going to say, well, he tried to work a wee deal, you know, a wee gentleman's agreement with Eddie for, to make sure that, you know, if they gave him 50,000, Eddie would give him the 50,000 pound back. But I think Eddie for money was just as big a con man as Hal Stewart. <laughs> so neither the two of them could trust each other. Yeah. So it never happened. Right. It never happened. And as I say, the temporary transfers were, they were cut for about four years. All
2: right. Yeah, all right. Well, there's this nice wee advert there for, for Adidas,
0: uh, Adidas and T-shirts and trainers. Mhm. Okay, on that page there. Yeah, I, I just, I, nice. I, just want to zoom in and seeing the guy in the left. I want to zoom in on him because I think he looks a bit like. Who, who do we think he looks like? Mm, good question. Well, not Dodds Anyway. Well, I I, 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 see Tom Cruise. He looks a bit like Tom Cruise.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah ah, you good. Go. Good kit that, isn't it? It's oh, good gear. Brilliant gear. Brilliant gear. The young ones are now beginning to to discover it again and, you know, have a look at that gear and look at it properly. Now it's coming to the fore again. That and Puma.
0: Hmm.
1: I see a lot of kids with Puma gear on as well now. And they were the the two biggest, Adidas and Puma were the... You know, if you had Adidas gear and Puma gear, you were king of the hill at that time. It's over on to pages 14 and 15.
2: So page 15, two players you've mentioned earlier on. Andy, there's mm. and Cyril Regis for West Brom and Terry Butcher for It's yeah. an unusual orange and black away kit. That's good stuff, that, isn't it? Two of them battling for the ball there. And if we just go over again then, Andy, unless you get in. So yeah. on the left-hand side there, the nice wee advert for uh, Mitre, uh, Mitre uh, trainers We uh, yeah. David O'Leary. Yeah, there. yeah. I don't know about the Mitre
1: trainers, but at that time... You know, you wouldn't have called the Queen your auntie, you know, if you didn't have a pair of Adidas Samba. Everybody wore them. They were the they were the end thing. The three stripes Adidas Samba. I don't remember the miter ones, right? I don't think you could buy Raymond in Belsall at that time. Yeah. I think he's, he's certainly earning his um
0: advertisement fee, isn't he? He's, he's earning it with all the stretches and jumps and stuff like that. Nowadays, you would just have the 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 photographs at the bottom, but they'd get yeah. them to do the bicycle, jump in the air, and, and I think, yeah, he's definitely earning that money.
1: Aye, aye. I think when you look at it now, you think to yourself, how stupid does that look? But, <laughs> you know, that's what photographers used to do away back then. They get you to do stupid things, something different. Aye. Every newspaper wanted something different. Yeah. So, page
2: 15, uh, we're into Scottish football there. So, first of all, we've got Alan McCulloch, Scotland's next keeper.
1: Uh, so this is uh, Alan McCulloch at Kilmarnock Do you remember Alan, Alan McCulloch playing against him Mandy? I do I do a couple of times Didn't know the fella particularly well you know but I'm just looking through they had a they had a great thing Kilmarnock with Scottish goalkeepers didn't they? When I mean, yeah. you look through the, the, the names of Ali Hunter yeah, I'm a very good friend of Ali's he played at Celtic Park as well he was a former Kilmarnock goalkeeper and Scotland goalkeeper as well but they had always Good background of goalkeepers at Kilmarnock. Uh, and bigfellow Allen was one of them.
0: Mm.
1: I see he's going he's to be tackled there. I had to get out the road here. That's Jimmy Melrose. And what a dirty wee bugger he was. <laughs> he'd be right out of the tap there. Good job that big fella's on the move. And Melo would have had him. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take that picture of But he'd tackle in goalkeepers, centre halves, half, anybody at all. Jimmy Melrose. Mm. Yeah. Hey. The only guy, the only fella to, to make Celtic's worst ever team three seasons
2: in the throat. <laughs> oh dear. I
1: never let
0: him forget that one. Yeah. He hates me for it. So, so uh, Alan, he played 440 league games for Camarnock between 73 and yeah. 90. Um He was out on loan for 10 games at Samirin in 1978. Now, during that time, Middlesbrough were, were apparently looking at him. But they then went for Jim Stewart instead, who was the first team keeper at Kilmarnock. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Jim Stewart went and Kilmarnock then recalled him back from St Mirren. So he, he missed out on that. But you're right. I mean, as you say, Ali Hunter, Jim Stewart, Alan McCullough, even though, as I'm sure you probably um, got any top, but, you know, he says Scotland's next keeper. He, n- he never got any caps. So he got one Scottish League 11 cap, one under 21 cap, and that was it. Yeah, it never worked out for them that way.
1: You can see the amount of good goalkeepers that were on the go around about that time up here right enough, you know. Uh, Every club, well, it felt like every club had a very good goalkeeper and every club's goalkeeper was attracting interest with down south. Uh, I think we had a glut of very, very good goalkeepers at that time. But Kilmarnock did. They always had a a good production line of goalkeepers. Uh, I remember it was... I can't remember who it was But he ended up being in goal for Everton Way back in the 60s as well Who played for Scotland Name evades me at this moment in time but he was a commandment goalkeeper as well Great list of club and international goalkeepers in there mm. no I'm just much. reading through that article That Alan McCulloch's article there Steen selected him for the squad For the British Championship In the two tour games in Poland and Hungary You
2: looking for Everton keeper there Andy Smith?
1: Uh, McLaughlin was McLaughlin, it? that was some Sandy McLaughlin. Yeah. I can't remember if it was that one or not. He'd be away
0: back in the sixties, wouldn't he? Aye, well sixty-nine he was at Kilmarnock, so it would have been mm-hmm. um I guess early seventies for for but he, I also met, I remember seeing a photograph of him and he's quite a rugged sort of Robert Mitchum type look to him. You know, you
1: know. So. I remember when Ali Hunter joined Celtic for Kilmarnock. I was still at Celtic Park at that time. You know, Ali came in with a massive reputation like that. Really good goalkeeper. Very, very good goalkeeper. Uh, Full international at that time. Came in and did very well at the start at Celtic. And then, you know, it tapered off a wee bit for him as well. I think after what was it, 73 at Hamden when who was the boy hit the ball? Was it Nahoda? Had a crashing shot for 25 yards in the World Cup qualifiers and Ali dropped it underneath his sons into the back of the neck. Czechoslovakia yeah. uh, it have been. and Ali's career went down after that for a while and they couldn't really pick it back up again you know worked really really hard but it just seemed to be that he, you know he wasn't the same goalkeeper for some reason mm. or strange breed goalkeeper yeah. you know can change the, the wind from week to week and Ali didn't achieve the same heights after that in the Czechoslovakia game it was uh, than he had been before he promised big things for Ali Hunter at Celtic Park it didn't work out, fine goalkeeper
2: hey, we move on to the next article then, here I we that guy. Okay. <laughs> so Andy Ritchie the Morton Maestro
1: and tell me Andy, in that photograph, are you wearing Adidas Samba there? That's it that's where it reminded me this morning when I seen it, I've got the gutties on that was be one of the games that you know, we would get a game on down at Capital when nobody else in the whole of the country would get a game on because Hal could sell it to STV and BBC and get the cameras done quick for for Glasgow, and he did that a few times. We played Partick Thistle when it was the only game in Scotland. In fact, there were very few games in the whole of the country, and uh, we we had got the Adidas Samba, and we all had them and Partick Thistle had just their boots. They didn't. They didn't think the game would be on. So that was a that was a body blow to them. But they were the big thing. You know, if you owned a period of Adidas Samba, you you were king in the hill. You know, I, I think
0: it's the same when, when you're when you playing snow and things like that. And games like that don't go ahead nowadays. And when you look back at the, you know, the old highlights and stuff of those games, I think we're missing. To, and I get I get that it's da- it can be dangerous traveling on the ground. It can be dangerous playing on that. But I think we miss out on so much with that. You know, it's like seeing just players sort of, you know, they, like they, they shorten their, their strides because, you know, they don't want to slip and all that sort of stuff. I just think we miss out on whether it's um, absolutely soaking and you kick the ball and it goes about half a metre and then it goes 10 cent. You know, I just think we're missing a lot out by not playing games in less than perfect, um, you know, circumstances.
1: Oh, I think that's got a lot the modern day pitches oh they're like bowling greens Andy absolutely fantastic I never miss an opportunity to go when I'm at football games if I'm lucky enough to be able to walk across the park you know it's manicured to perfection even the, you know I thought you were just being nice and no mentioning the fact that Caplo when I played down there was a bit of a shithole as well because of that uh, we had six inches of muck over the park at times and when the clyde would raise its water level it said it would all pour in through into capello and we'd have massive big muddy patches with no grass at all on the park and you just had to go on with it players were adaptable then you know yeah they just made the best of what situations there if you've been watching the the big match revisited yeah you know my granddaughter's got me onto that key now watching the big match some of the parks you know if it was about half a dozen blades of grass on them <laughs> Some of the players he's seen on it, you know, you talk about Rodney Marsh and Tony Curry and even Butch Wilkins there earlier on. They all, they all guys come through all that. No grass on the park, muck up to your ankles. And, and Capelo was like that. But then for about two months of the season, you'd get the really cold weather and then, uh, you know, the the sambas would come out and at least you would get, the ball would bounce a wee bit rather than stick in the muck. But as I said, players were adaptable. It was like in days. They talk about the fitness of players now, guys. You know, the modern day player is, without a shadow of doubt, and has been for a while now, fitter than the players from my era are, beyond. But we were fit for purpose. We were fit to play on parts like that, and situations like that. You know, and you know, we weren't a registered physiotherapist. Every modern day football player can tell you every injury he's had in his whole life metatarsals and something else and something else. You know, we had a sore leg or a sore ankle or a sore <laughs> knee. That was it, in a nutshell. Nobody tell you any different. And you had to manage them. But we were fit for purpose to play on surfaces like that. Like Capelo And You know, even if you look through some of the old bits of footage that they got for Ibrox and Celtic Park for the days, they had very little grass on their park as well. That was just the way it was, and you had to go on with it. But, hey, With some smashing players then, you know, with players who could control the ball in six inches of mud. That takes a bit of doing.
2: So that wee article there is is basically saying that Morton were doing well and then they've had a dip in in fortune. Things went wrong, you're saying here, Andy, and it was difficult to pick up the thread. Oh no, so it says right back Davey Hayes. We lost a couple of games where things went against us and it seemed to get to us. For instance, we had an awful lot of play against Aberdeen the League Cup semi-final, but at the end of the day, we were out of the tournament by the odd goal in three.
1: Yeah, they were exciting times. I remember the couple of seasons like that, you know. I Nobody can understand that, and I say it often, and people probably get fed up listening to it, we were part-time. We were training on a Thursday night and a Tuesday night. You I know, mean, I was working in the meat market, carrying sides of beef about and delivering them all out of the butcher shops over Scotland at six o'clock in the morning and then down for training at night time on a Tuesday and a Thursday night at Capelo. There was no preparation time for anything, you know. All the time I spent at Capelo, I spent as a part-time player. I was never full-time. I never went back full-time again until I went to Moro. And what a difference that would have made to that squad of players that we had at Capelo at that time. We had some fantastic players down there, Players who went on to a big careers down south. From what you know, we sold Neil York to West Ham and Joe McLaughlin to Chelsea and uh, Jimmy Tolmey to to Loughran in Belgium. We sold Mark McGee to Newcastle United, massive, massive clubs. You know, if these boys had had and you know they were guys that were out working, you know yeah. they, they went straight from their work to Capello. No time, you know, running the track. There were no training facilities. You know, and you couldn't go in the park in case you wasted it. No, that you could have wasted it anyway. It was that bad. But that was your training schedule during the winter. I was running on the track for an hour and a half, and maybe a wee five-a-side game at the end for five minutes. I know the rest of the clubs in the Premier League were off all time. You know, I had to ask for two days after my work. Hannibal's talking about the cup semi-final. I had to get in the meat market, and ask for a couple of days. We were going to a Largs, Whoa, big time, you know, to prepare for the cup semi-final. And uh, my guys in the meat market couldn't have cared less about Morton, what was going on. They just wanted people in there to do their shift. You know, go on with, can I get a couple of days off? No, if you take a couple of days off, you need to find another job, you know? That was the way it worked then. There was plenty of people looking for work at that time. But if we did get full-time Fatba for a couple of seasons, we would have won something. We went out in that part that day and froze in that League Cup semi-final. Hannibal's being kind to us when he said that. We had never been there before. The preparation was less than good. And uh, we froze on the day. And Aberdeen, well, Aberdeen beat us 2-1. And we really, we really should have drew the game. And if we had probably drawn the game, I think we would have won the replay. But uh, these guys were all having to do that under the disadvantage of being a part-time club. Hannibal says a couple of, I read that there, a couple of results went wrong for us. We went to Celtic Park leading the league around about November, December time, and uh, we scored. And then Celtic had a couple of disputed goals. Well, they said they were disputed. Johnny Doyle, God rest him, had run off the park with the ball, and we all stopped for the goal kick, and ran back on the park again with the ball, crossed it, and I think Tom Sullivan or somebody put it in the net. Celtic equalised. He was two yards off the park, and the linesman hadn't seen it, and there was a big rammy about it, and we were all complaining about it. Celtic supporters were booing us for doing that, and I think we lost the place a wee bit, another player, a couple of players sent off. But for that time, we felt hard done by, and then we lost another couple of games after that. I think we missed out in Europe by about three or four points or something like that, if my memory serves me correct. But we just weren't able to get out of that, you know, and the wee things that would crop up for any normal team would be able to get in the next morning, sort it out, have time to do all that. We didn't, we? we just moved on to the next game and the next game, that's all that mattered uh, but again as I say if we did full time football in there, I'm pretty damn positive we'd have won something might not have been the league but I'm certain we would have won something So I've got a wee question about David Hayes
0: actually because he became a wee bit of a darling of the Shoot magazine mm-hmm. appearing in it quite a bit, more than probably a lot of people
1: um, we, we did, the, we used to cut out the bits and put it up on the, the notice board at Capelo So so why why Davy Hayes? I think he used to go bevying with one of the reporters He <laughs> used to meet in the tin and have a right good swallow with one of the reporters and Hannibal would tell about all the secrets about Capolo and all, about all the players
0: Yeah,
1: I, I honestly can't remember the reporter's neighbour I would have called him out on it I really can't but it was a, one of the younger ones at that time right. so, and, and that's what they used to do. They used to go and have a, a wee drink during the, during the night or something like that, or mm. nights they would meet in town. And this is why Martin used to get a lot of publicity out Yeah. It. They did. And it was, a lot of that was due to Davy, mm. Davy and his relationship, you know. I was, I was always curious about
0: that because it, it did seem to get a lot more than, you know, your average um, person.
2: And, then um, you know, so there we go. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Right, well, we'll come, we'll come back to some uh, snippets from your career later on, uh, Andy. So, so if we go over the page again here, so it's Ray Clemens' column, The Importance of Our Pre-Season Tour. Uh, so Ray Clemens is talking about, um, obviously, Liverpool's pre-season tour, and he's, he's talking about uh, playing Dundalk. But we think thing I was noticing there that um, he mentions Anderlecht, uh, who played in his own testimonial uh, my testimonial: The Belgians ran out winners by eight six. That's <laughs> the kind of testimonial game I like. I like to see is uh, games like that. We might, we might score lines.
1: Did you get a testimonial like Capello? And- oh, no chance! Absolutely <laughs> no chance of that. Yeah. It would never have been my agenda anyway. You know. Yeah. When I, when I left Celtic to go to Capello, I left Celtic under the auspices that I had, things hadn't went well for me. My last year at Celtic Park. And I had dropped right out of the pecking order altogether, whereas I'd been in the first team squad at a very young age. And uh, by the time it got round to that time in 76, I had, you would have needed radar to find me in there. I dropped right out of the scene altogether. So I had to find somewhere where I could go and reinvent myself or play football on a regular basis to let people see that I could that I could play. Because there were so many stories about it at that time, you know. You know he, he doesn't do this because he argues with joke Stein and he fights with joke Stein and all that nonsense. You yeah, didn't do that at all. You that you didn't argue and you didn't fight with Jock You know, the word was legendary. That's you know you just go on with it. But it had big joke had been in the car crash and had been about eighteen months to two years away from the place. And it was during that time that my career took a nosedive. So I went to Capello. To, as I said, to reinvent myself, to show people on a short-term basis. I'd spoken to people and spoken to a couple of people in the game. They said, well, if you want to do that, the best place to go is capital. Because they'll sell everything. They'll sell the front door if they get a decent offer for it. So if you go there and do well, you'll go somewhere else and it'll benefit your career and you'll be able to move on. And that was the reason I went there. Not for any other reason. I went there to, to play, to play for a wee while, to do well, to do all the things that I, I was going to do. And somebody would come along, a bigger, inverted commas, better club. And and I would move on and continue my career again. You know, Celtic had tried to sell me a couple of times. Jordy Muller up at Falkirk had offered £60,000, which was a lot of money for a reserve team player at that time. And Celtic had knocked it back. Muller had offered a swap deal. Uh, They wanted, big joke, wanted Bobby Graham, played for Muller at that time in Liverpool. Very, very good player in the Premier League at that time. And so I think we're going to give them a the money plus me. Willie McLean was a manager, and I'd make up the deal like that. So there'd been a couple of things on the go that I'd missed it. And so when Morton came up, I thought, take the opportunity and do that. But it was to, I say, play and score goals and let people know that they were there. And you would, you would get another move. You would move on to bigger and better things. So testimonials were never, never in my thought. In fact, the guys that I played with in there, guys like. Davey Hayes, Jim Holmes, John McNeil got a testimonial at the end of it. These guys, George Anderson, these guys deserve testimonials. George Anderson was there for 14 years, never got a testimonial. Jimmy Holmes was there for 12 years, never got a testimonial. It was only people that the chairman liked down there got a testimonial. did not matter, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, There's a lot of guys who get testimonials down there, didn't deserve it as much as the guys that I'm mentioning now. But that's the way that Morton Football Club's always been run. They like you. You've made a chance of getting a testimonial. Whereas guys who give real service. Jimmy Holmes had, I think Jimmy Holmes had three spells in the Premier League with Morton. He was on the team that I played, and then he got promoted again with another manager, and then he got promoted again. George Anderson was there for a young boy to end his career. David Hayes, fantastic captain of the club for all year. <laughs> that's what testimonials are all about. Football players don't need testimonials now. You know, Bosman sorted that out. Bosman stopped football players from being a slave anywhere. they actually been able to plan some sort of life and career. Imagine, Tom, here's one for you. Imagine you turned up for training at Capital one Thursday night and you get called into the office and say, we've just sold you to somewhere down in England. Get your stuff ready, get everything organised. So Thursday night, you need to be doing there for Friday morning. So you're doing there at lunchtime. That's your way. Don't they didn't ask you to go home and discuss it with your wife, and you've got kids at school, and you've got no. You, they could sell you anywhere they wanted, and you were away the next day. Whether you liked that place or whether you didn't, and that happened to a few guys, but many guys I don't know they threw in a couple of quid, but that's what it was a £1, thousand, fifteen hundred pound, mm-hmm. and they're going to make your life different, but. That that was what everybody looked for. That was the only possibility in the game at that time, to, to benefit and benefit yourself. And you couldn't get testimonials written into your contract because they were a spontaneous gesture from the club to the player at the end of their working service. So I've heard many... many Martin Chairman used to promise... Who was it he promised? Oh, Hugh Curry was the gentleman's name. He promised George Anderson a testimonial. He told him he was getting everything to be sorted out. Unfortunately, Hugh Curry died before George finished his career. You know, and, and then Navy picked up the mantle and said, Well, we'll give George Anderson a testimonial at the end of it. Testimonials were, would have been more important for the provincial player who didn't earn a lot of money than it would have been for well due respect, Ray Clements or, or, or players at Rangers and Celtic. You know, it would be more important to the provincial player to be to be recognised like that financially. Our charity partner this season is the Western
0: Bartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following a school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families, and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money, and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Foodshare group on Facebook or WestDunbartonshireCommunityFoodShare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our just giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoot tb underscore podcast and at scotts Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer, Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clydebank. And so we've come to the end of part one of our podcast with Andy Ritchie. Please follow us on Twitter at ShootTB underscore podcast. You can get us on YouTube and in your favourite podcast app by searching for Shoot the Breeze. Don't forget to subscribe and come back next time to hear the second part of our show with Andy Ritchie. For now, thanks to Andy Ritchie, to Tom for being Tom and for you for listening. Until the next time, let's shoot the breeze.